This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Good morning to all of you, and uh, good morning to those of you um, elsewhere on our on our property here, or perhaps some of you at home or away. May God bless you. Uh, we miss you all. When we can't interact, it's good to interact when we can together and be an encouragement. I'm asking you to open to Acts chapter 20. We've been making our way through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20, if you care to use one of the Bibles we're providing for you here, you'll find that on page 929. Acts 20, <clears throat> this chapter is a narrative that records what Paul did after the events of that big riot in Ephesus. And if you were with us last week or connecting with us last week, you may you may remember. And what this chapter demonstrates as a whole is how Paul sought to safeguard, how he sought to protect the churches uh, that he and others had so lovingly and laboriously um, planted. When you love someone, you're going to do all you can to protect them. I think most of you understand that. And that's what love does. That's what the Good Shepherd did for us. And what we see here is Paul's deep love for the church and how he safeguards the churches, these local churches. But I don't want you to see only Paul's love. I want you to see the Lord's love, Christ's love, in providing such a shepherd, an under-shepherd, an apostle, as Paul. For Paul is serving the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. And after all, the overarching purpose of this book, the book of Acts, that we've been studying, is to demonstrate how the ascended Jesus is building his church. He is the one providing. He is the one sustaining. He is the one giving to his church. And so as we look at Paul today, I don't want you to lose sight of that. And though we've been moving slowly through the book of Acts, we can't forget how powerfully Jesus has transformed this man. How amazingly the Lord has transformed this man. We first met him and his name was Saul then in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, he was Saul the Pharisee. He was Saul the enemy of the gospel. Saul the enemy of the Christian faith. Saul, a man who was dead set to destroy Christianity. Don't forget that. Saul, a man who was imprisoning Christians, dragging them off, separating uh, families and standing there approvingly of the martyrdom of Stephen. This was Saul. But Jesus, the good shepherd, appeared to him one day on that road to Damascus. And that meeting with the Son of God changed everything about this person, this man, forever. <laughs> forever. As he would write to the churches in Galatia, he would reflect on it himself. And he would say, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the Damascus Road experience. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. He goes on to talk about how he had to meditate on this for some time. So we are looking at 
Paul's love for the church today, yes, his example, but we are never to lose sight or forget that it was the grace of God at work through the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that made this man be who he was. Do not lose sight of that. The Father set him aside before the foundation of the world, he says here, and that's the case with you as well, so don't lose sight of his grace and love for you. He was pleased to reveal his son to him on Damascus Road. Are you a Christian today? He was pleased. He was pleased to reveal his son to you. He didn't need to. He didn't have to. But if you're a Christian, that's, what, well, that's why you're here. That's why you're worshiping him. And then he called him. He set him apart to a specific task. For Paul, it was being an apostle. And for you and I as well, we have our own callings that God has given to each of us. And Paul would uh, later, as he, uh, as he writes to the church at Ephesus, he would later place before the Son, the, the, the risen and ascended Christ, uh, he would present him as the one who called him as well. Not just the ministry of the Father, by the power of the Spirit, but the Son. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says that he who ascended far above all the heavens, speaking of Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So he includes himself, of course, in that. He's doing what he's doing in chapter 20 because Christ is who he is, because grace is what it is. That same grace at work in his life is at work in your life as well if you're a Christian here this morning. So what did the Lord God do? What did the ascended Christ do to safeguard the churches through Paul? He safeguarded them, and we'll see in this whole chapter, by encouraging, by exemplifying, and by exhorting. By encouraging, by exemplifying, and by exhorting. Nothing new per se as we've made the book, our way through the book of Acts, but definitely needed to... to re- to be reflected upon again, to repeat these things because they're here, beloved, right? The church today, the evangelical church, particularly in our country, is just being torn asunder, fragmented by various views and different reactions to the things that we've all experienced these last two years. What does the church need? It needs encouraging. It needs exemplifying. It needs exhorting. And that's exactly what we see in this chapter. Now, there are three main scenes you're going to see in this whole chapter. Three main scenes. There is uh, the uh, record of the visiting of the churches in verses 1 through 6, and then there is the story of Eutychus, uh, the young man who fell asleep in a sermon. No, 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 no. Verses 7 through 16, and then we have have Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders in verses 17 through 38. Now, I will read my way through the chapter and make comments. We're going to look at all those. We're flying high today, going through all that. And I, my hope is to return next week, and particularly to some of the points that come out of the latter half there. So let's begin at Acts 20, verses 1 through 6. It says, after the uproar ceased, what is that? The riot in Ephesus uh, started by Demetrius. Uh, the silversmith, and so forth. Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Purus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. That would be the Passover time. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days." Uh, Luke had separated from them. He was left behind in Philippi back in chapter 16. So you have here the the bringing together of three different parties and so forth. They all meet in Troas. 
Paul was in Ephesus, we know, for three years. We know that because later in this chapter, he says so in verse 31. And we mentioned last week that we believe, though Luke does not record it, um, the majority of scholars agree that he was imprisoned and suffered greatly in Ephesus, uh, though Luke did account for that. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 15, while I was in Ephesus, he wrestled with wild beasts, as it were. That probably wasn't a reference to the riot per se. Um, we believe he wrote some of the prison letters while he was imprisoned in Ephesus. Scholars don't agree how many of them were written from there. But we also know that he was interacting with the church at Corinth. Uh, he, he wrote at least, he wrote four letters that we know of to Corinth, two of which we've lost. One of them is referred to as the painful letter. There was probably a brief visit that he made from Ephesus during that time as well. You know, Paul had a complicated and very difficult history with this church at Corinth. And there was a big struggle there a lot. <clears throat> and they had doubted his apostleship and so forth. And so he had sent Timothy and Titus ahead to prepare them for his visit. He decided not to go because he thought it would just exacerbate this conflict with them. And while he was waiting for, uh, for this uh, visit, Titus returned from Corinth with great news. Uh, they're reconciled to you. Everything's going to be okay, Paul. And so Paul, I'm sure, had a big sigh of relief, and he writes the last letter, 2 Corinthians. That's what we call 2 Corinthians. And there he expresses his joy, and he explained that he had collected offerings, love offerings from the churches in Macedonia for the poor church in Jerusalem. And now he was on his way to Greece, to Corinth, so that they could also contribute to this great offering that they were going to bring, love offering, to Jerusalem. So he says in 2 Corinthians 9 this, he says, <clears throat> verse 1, It's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, that's the offering, for I know, I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, Achaia is that region of Greece in which Corinth lies, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers, sending them ahead, so that our boasting about you may not, be, may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, ready for when the, he comes for the collection, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me, Acts 20, they are coming with him, and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated. He's all, we've been boasting about you. <laughs> so get ready. Don't make me look bad. To, to say nothing of you. You also will be ashamed, he says, for being so confident. So I thought it was necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and to arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So all that is going on behind verses 1 and 2. Everything I just said in Acts 21 and 2. When he had gone through those regions, Paul is slowly making his way across northern Greece. And then it says, verse 2, he had given them much encouragement when he went on the way. He came to Greece. Now that is Corinth. That's where he's at now. He's arrived at Corinth after all this time. Then verse 3 tells us that he spent Three months there in Corinth. This was probably the winter of, of 56. I almost said 1956. No. <laughs> it was the winter of 56, 57. And in those three months, in the winter of 56 and 57, Paul wrote his magisterial letter to the Romans in which he explained the gospel there in that winter of 56 and 57. Then he was getting ready to leave, and he, verse 3 says, he came to know of a plot that was against him. So rather than sail with the rest of them, he decided to go across land, you see. Now, we're not told what the plot was or why not getting on the ship would avoid uh, what the plot was planning. Maybe they were planning to jump him at the next harbor and he heard about it or something. But we don't know exactly. He decides to travel by land. He mentions the names of these people who are going with them. They're organized geographically. Why does he mention them? Well, you've heard now the background, what's going on here. Because they would be the ones traveling with him, not only to protect him, but carrying the funds 
from the various churches. They were going to go with him to Jerusalem. Remember, that's his goal, to reach Jerusalem, then get Rome. And then they would also be the ones who would be able to return to their churches and give an account of how the funds were received, how people reacted, how they were used, and so forth. So that's why Luke notes all these things. So we come now to verse 7. On the first day of the week, the church met on what we call Sunday. Uh, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Paul knew he was leaving the next morning, and he's saying, I want to get as much in with these people as I can. And so he's talking with them, he's teaching them. They, They met in the evenings and in the early mornings. And why was that? Because most of them worked on Sunday. Uh, so they met in the evening, and here Paul was prolonging all this conversation, all it says, all the way until midnight. <clears throat> there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Now, Luke's a physician. He notes this detail. Maybe he's trying to tell us something. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. <laughs> And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up there. Stop there for a second. Let that be a lesson to each and every one of you. (laughs) We move on. (laughs) But, this is one of those great transitions, but, verse 10, Paul went down. Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread, literally broken the bread, and eaten, implying that he's talking here about the Lord's Supper and then a meal. So the two things happened together. He conversed with them a long while. How long would he go now? Until daybreak, <laughs> until dawn. Man, you killed somebody. Now you had, had to raise him from the dead and you're still going. <laughs> he goes till daybreak and so he departed. Verse 12 is the capstone to this section. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Now, encouraging was the first safeguard of the churches that that we see in this chapter. Encouraging, the section open and closes with the same verb. Verse 1 and verse uh, 2 and in verse 12. The ministry of encouragement. Verse 1, after encouraging them, he said farewell. Verse 2, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, that is Corinth. Verse 12, they took the youth away alive and were not a little, same verb, parallel, encouraged, translated here, comforted by, by the ESV. We've seen this verb before. In the book of Acts, parakaleo, which means to come alongside. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. Come alongside to either console, come alongside to comfort, come alongside to exhort, come alongside to encourage. It's translated differently uh, in different contexts. But that's an emphasis here. Three times the word is used. It's the bookends, verse 1 and verse 12. And we've seen the verb repeatedly in the book of Acts. It's part of the methodology of the apostles in the early church. In chapter 14, verse 22, spoke of Paul and Barnabas strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them, encouraging them to continue in the faith. In chapter 15, it was Judas and Silas, verse 32. They strengthened. They, they, they were prophets who encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Chapter 16, verse 40, we're back to Paul. They went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, encouraged them, those who just got out of prison. Encourage, 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 encouraging, encouraging. Paul travels. What does he do? He encourages, he encourages. He sends people like Silas and others. What do they do? Encourage, encourage these young these young believers. Uh, he encouraged them to persevere. He encouraged them to have hope, to have faith. He warned them they're going to be tested, they're going to be tried, but he encouraged them that God's with them. Look at me. I survive all kinds of things. And so he would encourage the saints on and on and on. You know, it is not just a pastoral duty. Indeed, it is to encourage. 
but it's not just a pastoral duty. It's just part of the life together in a new community, the community of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, you know it well. He says there, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another. That's the same verb, parakaleo. Encourage one another. Come alongside one another uh, every day as long as it is still called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. People's hearts get hard. Uh, we are deceived by sin. The promises the world makes that it does not deliver. Why do we need to be encouraged? That's why we need to be encouraged. Our hearts are fickle. Our hearts are fickle. Distractions abound. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave. The God I love. That's just, that's still there. In your, in, in your humanity, it's still there. And so we need that encouragement because our spirituality, our faith, our relationship with God can get cold. It can become like a candle that's beginning to flicker, a flame that's getting dimmer and dimmer. And what do we need? We need someone to come along and fan that flame back up to encourage you, to encourage one another. And how do we encourage one another? Well, so many ways. I mean, think of the ways we're just in this context, the things we've been reading. How about this great offering? How about meeting each other's materials needs? Doubtless the church of Jerusalem would have been deeply and profoundly encouraged by these brothers traveling so far by foot and by sea to bring this love offering to the impoverished church. So meeting each other's needs is a way of encouraging someone and you yourself will be encouraged because at the end of the chapter, Paul will say the Lord has taught it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when you, <clears throat> when you are not involved, you see, in encouraging others or giving in some way of yourself or of your wealth, in whatever way, you are not receiving that blessing, you see. And your focus stays right here on yourself. But when your focus moves to others and those who have greater needs or different needs than you, it just has that way in the Spirit's power of lifting you up, you see. Why? Because it is more blessed to give than to receive. So remember, you are all channels of grace to one another, not reservoirs of grace, receiving, receiving, consuming, consuming, like we're taught here in our materialistic culture. You are channels of God's grace. We encourage each other by using our spiritual gifts with one another, just simply talking with one another. You know, Paul had never met the church at Rome. Remember, it got started apart from him. And he's on his way there. And as he writes from Corinth during those three months, he says in Romans 1, verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul says, I've never met you, but I hear about your Christian faith, that it's genuine, and I just want to spend time with you, that I may encourage you, and you may encourage me, you know. That's how we encourage one another. Fellowship, encouraging one another's faith, uh, just by simply talking, interacting with Christians, uh, reaching out to each other, uh, if if only by cards and calls and messages, but beyond that, being together and encouraging one another. How else do we encourage one another? Well, Paul was here with them. <coughs> he was with them worshiping together as we are doing now. They gathered. They broke the bread with the definite articles there. And so they had the Lord's Supper together. And then they had a meal, he says. And then they ate together. And then he talked and kept teaching, spending time together, you see. Uh, you see, do you note again in this chapter, just like in previous, how little Luke and Paul, by virtue of the fact that Luke's talking about Paul, how little he makes of this miracle. I mean, this kid fell three stories, okay? And then he was dead. And what did they do? They went on with the service, you know? Hey, Paul raises them. They go upstairs. There's nothing here. And we all sat in amazement. And for three hours, we just were amazed. It doesn't say that at all. There's nothing there. So much so that some critics and some commentators say there was no miracle. There's no miracle at all. The boy fell and, you know, 
Paul went down and it sh- shook him up, shook him awake. Uh, because otherwise, how could they just go on? It's just because Paul was not infatuated with the sensational. Miracles do not justify or sanctify anyone. <laughs> they just get our attention. And once he had their attention, he knew they were an even more ready audience. He's thinking, I can push this till dawn now. <laughs> you know, they're going to listen now, you see. And no one's sitting in the windows. <laughs> So you, you understand, he, he encouraged, spent time with them. They got together. Uh, what Luke is showing us here indeed is that, that God works through Paul like he worked through Elijah, like he worked through Elisha, like he worked through Jesus, right? God can work through his chosen instruments in however he wants to, whatever means he wants to. And in this case, he brought life again back to this boy. How do we encourage one another? Worshiping together, fellowship uh, interacting, and, but also, lastly here, by pointing each other to the very source of our encouragement, our Lord Jesus Christ. When people lose that sight of Him, they lose the sight of His grace, they lose sight what it means to be a Christian, they lose sight of the fact that He's both their Lord and they're accountable to Him, but he's the, they're, they're His sheep and He's their shepherd. And surely, goodness and mercy will follow us every day of our life. If he, he laid down his life for us, you see, we lose sight of that. Don't you? Don't you forget that? Yes, you do. And you become sometimes very deeply, profoundly discouraged. And so one of the greatest means of encouraging one another is being fluent in the gospel and knowing how to bring that to bear in someone's life, reminding them of God's grace and how it works in your life and how it's going to work in their life, you see. Paul says in Corinthians 5.14 that the love of Christ constrains me. That verb means it, it compels. It has a power that urges me on. And people lose sight of the love of Christ. They need to be reminded of the extent of Christ's love that they might be deeply encouraged, you see. And so we encourage one another, helping each other fix our eyes on Jesus. So that's the first safeguard <clears throat> for the churches. Uh, it, it was encouraging. Now the second <clears throat> And the third come from verses 13 through 27. And that is in the farewell speech to the elders there. Exemplifying and exhorting. So let's start, let's pick it up in verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. Remember, he went by land, for so he had arranged intending himself to go by land on this stretch as well. And when, we met, and when he met us at Assos, we took him on board, and we went to Mytilene. I'm not just trying to sound Italian. That's what, how it's pronounced, okay? Mytilene, okay? We went to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite uh, Chios, and the next day we sailed to Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. They're making their way down, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So he's sailing down. He decides to go past Santa Cruz and land in Monterey. Okay, he says, I don't want to go in to Santa Cruz. Why? He didn't, he, somehow he thought he would be consumed there if he went there. Either by, either by good things, like he's good, they're going to just pound him with questions. It's gonna, he's going to be teaching there forever. He's not going to be able to break away. Or by the bad things. Last time he was there, there was a riot, right? So he says, it's better for me to go past. I'm going to pull in in Monterey and send word to them that they got to come walking down to me. That would be 30 miles one way. So that was a two-day trip. And so he sends for them, and they come. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit 
not knowing what will happen to me there, meaning not specifically, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. How about that for a job description, huh? But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. And what is that ministry? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Paul doesn't say, it doesn't mean he's never done anything wrong. What he's saying is if, if you've heard what I've preached and you believed, that you'd be fine with God. But if you don't, I'm innocent. I told you what you needed to be justified. So that's what he means by that. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so we pause there exemplifying. What's that mean? It means that one safeguard for the church, and in particular here, the leaders of the the Ephesian church, was Paul's modeling, right? Paul's example. Uh, This is our only example in the book of Acts of teaching addressed to Christians. He's all all the other sermons and things we read there, that he's speaking towards unbelievers. Uh, These are these, these are Christians, and in particular, he's speaking to the servant leaders or the elders and pastors of the church at Ephesus. These are Gentile converts to the faith, and it's only a summary. I mean, when somebody travels by foot 30 miles for two days, you don't just say what took me two minutes to read, right? So when Luke writes, remember, he condenses. This is a summary of the kinds of things he was speaking to them, And it is a farewell address, not unlike others in the Scriptures. At different high points in salvation history throughout the Scriptures, there are farewell speeches from one generation to the next. We have Moses, we have Joshua, we have Jesus as he's leaving. Now here is Paul's, uh, a farewell speech of his to a church he had spent three three years discipling and, and to these elders from that church. And as he, as he speaks to them, as in many of these farewell speeches, he looks both backwards and he looks forward. He looks back at his time with them and he says, my life with you was a model for you. That's what he's saying here. And then he also looks forward and we'll see later that he warns them as he looks forward. In other words, his ministry, his ministry, those three years in Ephesus was the model, he says for these pastors, for these elders. <clears throat> and he, he pleads with them to reflect, to remember what he was like when he's with them. He says, you yourselves know, verse, uh, verse 34, and, and also at, at the beginning there in verse, 30, in verse 18. Verse 18, you yourselves know. Verse 34, you yourselves know. Uh, in verse 31, remembering, remembering. So he is appealing to their memory of his character, of his time with them. He did the same thing with the church at Thessalonica. The church at Thessalonica, he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Uh, he says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness to minister to you. He says, uh, let's see, later in the chapter, in verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, toward you believers. Verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you. So Paul says, you yourselves know. You yourselves know. He did that in Thessalonica. He's doing it here with the Ephesians. You know, in one sense, it is sad. In one sense, it's sad that the apostle needed to appeal repeatedly, not only with these churches, but with the Corinth, to defend his own character. Because it appears that that's what was happening even at Ephesus by this time. 
such as at Thessalonica and at other places, that he would have to say, listen, whatever they're telling you about me, you know. You need to think back. Forget what they're telling you about Paul. And you think back at when I was with you. Wasn't I like with you like a mother with her children? Wasn't I like a father who was caring for his children? Didn't I encourage you night and day? Didn't you see my tears? Or have you forgotten all that? You know, wh why are you listening to this gossip? And so Paul here, once again, now this time with the Ephesian elders. In fact, later he'll say that he thinks there's some trouble coming up among them, themselves. And so he, he pleads with them, appeals to their memory, and he stresses four things in particular. Today we're moving right through them, but I, I want to return to this, Lord willing, next week. He appeals to their memory of his time with them, and he stresses four elements of, of his modeling before them. Uh, he, he stresses his consistent lifestyle that he had with them, his Christ-like attitude, humility, his genuine love, his tears, and his faithful teaching ministry. Night and day, he says, in public and in private, the whole counsel of God. So these are the four elements that stand out in this farewell speech. First of all, his consistent lifestyle when he was with them. Verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you. How I lived among you. Peter would later say, shepherd the flock of God among you. Uh, they are part, you are part of that flock. You are with them. And here Paul is setting the original example. You know, it's one thing, as they say, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> we all know about that saying. But Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. And Jesus said that the Pharisees were unlike what Paul is doing here. Jesus says in Matthew 23, he's speaking to the crowds and to his disciples, and he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they've inherited uh, the leadership in the covenant. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. He says, for they preach, but do not practice. In fact, they put burdens on people put burdens that even they cannot bear in order to control people. But one of Paul's main features in his modeling and his exemplifying the Christian life was his consistent lifestyle. Remember how I lived among you, not just my teaching, but my relationship with you, how he carried himself. And one of the things that stands out that he will point out later is how he didn't covet any of their money, which was... Which was which was well known that traveling itinerant teachers and philosophers would come into towns and they had their fee structures and that sort of thing. You know, big old fee structures, a contract, you know, I need to be in a four-star hotel, you know, I like a foot massage at 8 a.m. and then I'll go to the class and all this sort of stuff, right? And so Paul, when he would come to new places, he would never exact anything from them. Look at what it says. Down later in the chapter, he says, verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, which incidentally are recorded nowhere else, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so, Paul, you know, Paul worked hard. This was part of his lifestyle. He was generous in his lifestyle as well. Now, elsewhere, elsewhere, we've seen this when we went through uh, some of the letters of Timothy, both uh, when we went through 1 Timothy and then, uh, and then Mike Lucas came and preached through 2 Timothy. Paul elsewhere makes clear that local churches ought to support those who labor in the word. But you see, they're there. They're staying at that church. Those are among them. But this was not Paul's personal approach as an itinerant church planter. He, and he, everywhere he went... He had the right to, to receive from them support, but he would rather receive support from places he already planted 
rather than where he was now planting. Why? Because he didn't want to come off as a burden or come off as these other people. And so that's how Paul worked. But this was his conviction, not necessarily everything he taught regarding how local churches ought to operate. But what we see in here is his consistent lifestyle with them, how I was with you the whole time, how I lived among you, you see. Now, let's go to his second element, his Christ-like attitude, verse 19, his humility. He says he was serving the Lord among them with all humility. Humility. That is a big New Testament word, a big gospel word, humility, tape no fursune. Don't need to memorize that. <laughs> you know what that literally means? It just, very literally, it means lowliness of mind, lowliness of mind. Uh, but if you look in a Greek lexicon, a uh, biblical lexicon, you have their part of a definition there, a de- it is a disposition of valuing or assessing oneself appropriately. Valuing or assessing oneself appropriately. And as Christians, especially in light of your own sinfulness as a creature and God's holiness as the creator. That's how you value yourself. Not in comparison to comparing yourself to others who are below you, but you can assess yourself and value yourself properly when you know who God is. You see. Rome, Paul would later write to the Romans, let no man uh, think more highly of himself than he ought. For whatever you have, it's God's grace that gave it to you. So don't forget that you're a creature, you're a sinner. Don't forget that, that there's a creator who is holy and just and righteous, who, who has wrath stored for those who are not reconciled to him. Don't lose sight of that, and you will grow in humility. Paul was one of those, you see. He never, he never lost sight of, of, of the wonder, the wonder that Jesus would call him to be in the ministry, you see. He never lost sight of the wonder of God's grace to save him, this active enemy of the cross, the, the preaching of the gospel. He just never he could never get over that, you know. Uh, he was always amazed. And may God give each of you a sense of wonder that God loves you, <laughs> that he has loved you, that he still loves you, and that he will love you, you see. Don't get over that. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He was saying, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, I am the least of the apostles. You see how he compares himself to them, but when he does, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, he said. Ephesians 3, 8, he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, He says, I'm in the back of the line, the least of all the saints. This grace was given, the grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul never, never um, lost sight of that. You know, humility is not not knocking yourself down all the time. That's sort of false humility. It's a posture in your heart that that grows the more you come to know the greatness of God, the deeper you appreciate the depth of His love and grace for you. When you understand that were He to give you what you merit, what you deserve, you would be lost forever. And so Paul is there. He lives there. He moves there. He, he's seen great things happen like he grabs a young boy named Eutychus, and like Elijah, the boy comes back to life. But what does he do? He pours himself out all the more to them. He is humble in heart, you see. You know, humility was frowned upon by the Greco-Roman culture. They thought that was a sign of weakness, right? Pride was exalted. Uh, humility was seen as a weakness. But for Paul, humility is Christ's likeness because is there any greater condescension 
than that of the eternal Son of God adding humanity and coming here as he would write to the Philippians in chapter 2 and humbling himself by becoming a man and not only that, but dying. Not only that, but death on a cross, you see. So for Paul, that was always the mark for him, you see. He said, if, if the Lord could love me this much and, 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 and go through this condescension, I can as well. I seek to. Um, you know, there's a soft, very strong temptation in ministry. He's talking to elders here, right, pastors? There's a very strong temptation in ministry to self-exaltation. It just, it's just powerful um, to think of yourself more important than you are, to lose sight of it's all been the grace of God and be content with what he gives you. You know, the, the modern word celebritism was invented. <laughs> it was invented uh, to be used to describe the toxic reality of celebrity worship that we have today. Celebrity worship. You know, people worship athletes and film stars and musicians and some that did actually did none of that have no talent at all. They just, you know, they were born with a certain last name, so they're a celebrity. And people worship them. And this, the thing that is just makes you want to be sick is watching that come into the church. And self-exaltation and some of the celebritism that exists in some of these um, uh, large gatherings and, 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 and uh, posturing that takes place in certain conferences. Uh, that was not the case with Paul, you know. You imagine if somebody today grabbed somebody, literally, and we had it on film, he hugged him, and the kid had uh, fallen three stories, and then he came back to life. Instant celebrity, right? I mean, everywhere, right? He's followed by how many, you know? And with Paul, it was run back upstairs and break the bread and have a meal with them. Let's keep going. Um, humility of heart. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, a humble man is willing to have his name and gifts eclipsed so that God's glory may be increased. He is content to be outshone by others in gifts and esteem so that the crown of Christ may shine the brighter. This is the humble man's motto. Let me decrease, let Christ increase. And so Paul is exemplifying. That's how he safeguards the church, by providing them with a model. He's a model of his consistent lifestyle, his Christ-like attitude, and then his genuine love. Verse 19, it says that he served them with tears. Verse 31 he, he did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In other words, he had compassion for them. Like a nursing mother with uh, her children, he says to the Thessalonians, like a father with his children. And this was seen in that he was willing to serve them even though it brought about suffering. He says to the Thessalonians, I loved you in the midst of conflict. He served them in the midst of conflict. You know, in the last two years, since the pandemic, never have we seen more pastors leave their flocks. Never in the Western world. It was just too much or, or just not what I signed up for or, you know, how dare you uh, have a different opinion than I, you know, and all sorts of things. And it's just flocks disintegrating Pastors leaving their positions. And Paul, in his humility, in his love for these people, he served them knowing that, one, it may bring uh, conflict, it may bring pain in that town. And then lastly, when he leaves, he's probably going to be criticized <laughs> and doubted because why is there always a riot where this guy's goals? There's got to be something wrong with him, right? <laughs> uh, so he he. He persisted, praise God. And then his last, the last element of his modeling was his faithful teaching ministry. This is what we want to come back to next week, but I want to just say it was faithful because he had no favorites. He preached the Jew and Gentile we saw there. It was comprehensive in its gospel call. He said he preached of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he did that to Jew and to 
and to Greek alike. In other words, it wasn't all repentance. It wasn't all faith. It was repentance to God and faith in Jesus Christ. To the Gentile, Paul would be preaching like this. You need to repent of all this idolatries and false gods you worship and sexual immorality. You need to repent of that before God, and you need to place your faith in Christ Jesus, raised from the dead as the only true God. To the Jew, he'd look at him and say, you need to repent of your covenant disloyalty. You know better. You have the scriptures and so forth. And you need to place your faith in a crucified, killed Messiah. The path to glory is through crucifixion. Place your faith in Jesus of Nazareth. See, he had the same message, though its, its impact, the way it came toward them, would be a little different. But Paul was comprehensive, and he had no favorites. He preached to them all. It was comprehensive in the, in the extent of what he covered. It was the... Uh, the whole counsel of God, he says. Whatever scripture teaches, I'm going to teach, you know. And there's many a place, many a pulpit, many a church where you kind of make your way through, through certain books and all of a sudden you skip two chapters. And nobody expl ever explains why, you know. Why did they not cover that? Because the word predestination was in that chapter. No. <laughs> you know, so, and they just move on. They move on. Why? Because... They are not going to present the whole counsel of God, which would be profitable to them, but because they don't want the impact of the disagreements and the differing opinions that exist and so forth. But that is what Paul did comprehensively. And he preached a gospel that was faithful to the grace of God. He refers to it as the gospel of the grace of God. Don't let that escape you. The gospel of the grace of God. Later you'll say he entrusts them to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, you see. Remember the gospel is called good news because it is an announcement, a proclamation of a finished work. Hear ye, hear ye, sinners, here's what God has done for you, you see. And that, some of you need to hear that again today. Or maybe for the first time, this needs to settle in with your heart. There's only one way to be reconciled to God. It's good news because he's achieved it. And what is it? Repentance towards God. Admit you're a sinner. Stop comparing yourself to your unbelieving neighbors or to others. You, you may be worse than them. It's been said. Cheer, 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 cheer up. You're worse than you think. But God loves more, you more than you've ever imagined, you see. But you'll never turn to his love unless you cheer up enough to know how bad you truly are. And that's what Paul never lost sight of. That's the gospel he preached. And may God help some of you be reconciled to God today, right now. How? Repentance to God and faith in Jesus Christ. Well, he, he safeguarded the church with, with, with all of these, uh, the, the modeling, his consistent lifestyle, his Christ-like attitude, his genuine love, his faithful teaching ministry. And then lastly, through exhorting, he speaks to the elders directly, he changes to commands or imperatives in verse 28. He says in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. There's the first imperative. And the second one is down below where he, where he says in verse 31, therefore be alert. Pay close attention to yourselves and to all the flock and be alert. He is now what? Exhorting them. He's exhorting them, and he says, pay, a, pay a close attention, and that verb means to, to be concerned about. <laughs> be concerned about yourself, first of all, your own piety. Don't be telling everyone else what to do when you don't do it yourself, you see. Uh, what would he say to Timothy? The same words, 1 Timothy 4.16. It was a great uh, McChain, a preacher, who said, my... People's greatest need is my personal holiness. But his focus wasn't solely on, on himself or what you achieve, because McChain also said, for every look you take at yourself, take ten at Christ. <laughs> when you see you're not holy where you should be, then make sure you look to him who is holy for you and who can make you holy. But pay close attention to yourselves. Care about your spiritual condition. And then for all the flock, he says, all the flock. 
be concerned about everyone. It's been, it's been insane <laughs> these two years, honestly. It's been insane. Um, you know, we sent out some, we've sent out things to you all. We've sent out polls, and, and then we've gone over the list, and then we ask you, are you here? Are you not here? Are you there? And, oh, no, I'm not here. I'm, I'm in Virginia. I left eight months ago. Oh, okay, well, <laughs> we're praying and wondering. All right, it's good to know. Thank you. Uh, or, or, yeah, I'm here. And then there's those of you, you know, hi, yeah, you don't know me. I've been here. <laughs> It's just been crazy, but believe me, we're going over these lists, and we're praying, and we're calling, we're asking. Uh, pay attention to yourself and to all the flock. The church is a flock, and you are shepherds. And he uses the three terms here. The elders, they are overseers, which is episcopos, and, or, 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 or bishops, and, and you are to poimen, you are to shepherd, you are to pastor. You're to be concerned. But you're yourself and the flock. And then he undergirds that. And this is where I'll bring it to an end here. He undergirds this exhortation to be, to be shepherding, to have concern for the flock, and to be on the alert like a watchman for dangers coming to the flock from themselves and from others. He undergirds that exhortation by showing them, reminding them of the value of the church to God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, the elders are the overseers, to care, to shepherd, point men, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. <laughs> which he obtained with his own blood. And he unites here the ministry of Jesus, the Son of God, with the will of God the Father, and says with his own blood, doubtless he's referring to, uh, to, to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is a priceless uh, flock to God. It is the bride of Christ, and what a price was paid for this bride. In 1 Corinthians 5.20, he reminds the Corinthians there, you were bought. You were bought with a, with, with a price, you see. A price was paid for you. And that price was the price of the Son of God condescending to becoming a human being and then suffering in the place of human beings, death, even death on a cross, there becoming the propitiation for our sins. That is, He satisfies the Father's wrath for what you deserve by taking what you deserve upon Himself. What a cost, huh? What a price, what a cherished possession the church is to God and to Jesus, the good shepherd. P Peter says in 1 Peter 1.18, knowing you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited uh, from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with, you know the verse, with what? The precious blood of Christ. Could you say that? The precious blood of of Christ. That's what was paid for you, for you, to ransom you, to reconcile you, to redeem you, and bring you into an eternal family with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Praise be to God. Revelation 5, 9, that vision that John has uh, of, the, of, the, of the elders and the people singing, the angels worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so he reminds them, he exhorts them to be watchful over this, to be on the alert, to care, to have love. He reminds them of the nature and value of the church, the price that was, that was paid. And I want to remind you, if you're a Christian today, what was paid for you? The cost to bring you into this eternal family. On one side, it reminds you, as Paul reminds the Corinthians, your life is not your own. You were bought. You were bought with a price. And where many a Christian walk and many a Christian marriage and where many a Christian family begins to disintegrate is having been bought at such a great price to not live for yourself but for him who bought you. They begin to disintegrate when they each go their 
own way, living for self. You were bought at a price. Be reconciled. Seek Him. Live for Him. On the other side, it's to remind those of you who tend to not take one look at yourself and ten at Christ. You tend to take ten looks at yourself and only one at Christ. I'm here to remind you today what you mean to Him that He would give His only Son to bring you into His embrace for eternity. Do not doubt God's love for you. Would you, would you disregard something that costs you the very life of one of your children? Absolutely not. You would not disregard you would do all you could to remember and protect them. And let me tell you, God is not disregarding what you're going through, what you're suffering. He knows what is happening in our world, in our time, in your lives, and He loves you enough to sustain you, protect you, bring you through this season of life which we're all experiencing. Or some of you have your own experiences. They're very different than others. And He will present you holy and blameless before Him. To know Him and interact with the living God for an eternity. Do not doubt it. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or pandemics, or governments. No, nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, not even death, for though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, surely goodness and mercy will follow me every day of my life. Paul was used by Jesus to safeguard the churches. Paul did not do what he did in his own strength. And neither is he calling you and me or any of our elders or anyone to do these things in our own strength. It is the grace of God that is with each of us. 1 Corinthians 15.10 By the grace of God I am what I am and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yes, Paul, we'll give you that. You read the book of Acts. Did ever a man work harder than Paul for the gospel? Though, he says, it was not I. It was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Do you doubt you can be an encourager? Hmm? Do you doubt you can be a model? Do you doubt you could be an exhorter? Not you. It's the grace of God. So seek it. Look to Him. Let's pray.